Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Um, Eric, we didn't get the opportunity last week to talk about the Super Bowl because we recorded before the game and we didn't know how things would turn out. Um, I'm sure being the mature, objective, rational individual that you are, that you've moved on in every conceivable way, um, that you wouldn't, for example, spend the week blaming officials for your team blowing a sizable halftime lead. <laughs> Look, obviously, as a lifetime Kansas City Chiefs fan, I was perfectly happy with the outcome, but um, ah, you, you, you ready to talk about it, or should we move on? Should I find something else to talk about? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I have moments where I absolutely do not want to talk about it. And okay. and I have moments where all I want to do is scream about the <laughs> absurdity of that holding call and how we'll never actually know who deserved to win this year's Super Bowl, my Eagles or your Chiefs. Um, it's It's been a week. I should be over it, but I'm not. Uh, but, but in an attempt to distract from thinking about it, I, I will pivot the conversation to a quick tale from the Super Bowl party I was at that has to do with boxing, actually. Um, okay. At some point in the second half, they started showing celebrities in the crowd, and they showed Floyd Mayweather. And mm -hmm. uh, so there were uh, several teenagers and almost teenagers at this Super Bowl party. So they show Floyd, and one kid says, who's that guy? And another kid, my friend's 18-year-old son, says, Floyd Mayweather, he's the greatest boxer of all time. Now, my, my son was with me, and he knows how I feel about this. We've had this conversation. And so he said quietly, are you going to respond to that, Dad? Um, <laughs> now, it, 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 we're talking somewhere in the later stages of, of a close Super Bowl featuring our team. Um, and, and the kid lived there. It's his house. Uh, it, it just was not the time or the place to be all. Well, actually, Floyd Mayweather is one of the all-time greats. You could make a case for him in the top 10 or top 20, uh, but nobody who actually follows boxing believes he's the greatest of all time. Uh, not the time for that, so I bit my tongue. But it, it was interesting to hear him say that and to be reminded, if you tell a lie enough times to enough impressionable people, <laughs> they, they will believe it's the truth. Uh, there probably is an entire generation of kids who've barely watched yeah. any boxing, but who believe Mayweather is the GOAT because he says he's the GOAT and has a hat that says GOAT on it. Uh, so uh, <laughs> so there you go. A, a little something to get mildly riled up about to distract from the thing that I'm deeply riled up about. I, I kind of imagine, I could almost imagine you like at the end, after you've you know thrown some things around the place and, and maybe not as many as you would have done if it were actually at your house. Right. Where finally you just turned up another thing. Jimmy <laughs> <laughs> like, Robinson's the greatest fighter of all time. Look him up. Right. And then slam the door behind me as I walked <laughs> to my car. Yeah. Exactly. Should have done that. And then realized that you'd left Eli in the house and then you have to go back in <laughs> sheepishly. Awkward. <laughs> uh, oh, well. I don't know why we, being sports fans, it's, it's, we tell ourselves it's fun and it's just not most of the time. Uh, right, yeah, it always, no. it almost always, for everybody except the fan of one, the fans of one right, team, right. it always ends up in misery. Right, and that's it's amazing, and, and and that's part of the reason I stick with boxing is uh, I feel like we've discussed this, but I'm not deeply invested in who wins or loses most of the time, right. and half the time. 
the one you're rooting for wins. So <laughs> that's that's right. All right. Talking of boxing, we have quite a lot of it to cover on this week's podcast as we find ourselves at a busy point in the Showtime schedule with live cards week after week right now. Um, we will be recapping Friday's Showbox triple header as well as previewing this coming Saturday Showtime Championship boxing card headlined by Supriel Matias versus Jeremias Ponce. We will look ahead to Jake Paul and Tommy Fury finally facing off. We'll break down the latest news on Javante Davis. I'll count down the top five Hall of Fame worthy performances of this year's three new inductees. And Eric will put me to the test with another edition of the fight game. Good Lord, that's a lot already. (laughs) Um, But first, the trend of pretty much every weekend of 2023 providing an all-action war or two continued. Uh, Saturday's action included a fight of the year contender at 122 pounds and a thriller with a controversial finish at 126. Yeah, let's start with the latter, the the featherweight fight with the controversial ending. Uh, In front of a fired-up crowd in Nottingham, England, Lee Wood built a lead on all three scorecards over the first six rounds of his battle with Mauricio Lara, though there were plenty of heavy shots landing in both directions. But in boxing, a lead can disappear with one punch, and in this case it did due to a left hook late in the seventh round that dropped Wood hard. He got up, his legs were not entirely under him, There were about 10 seconds to go in the round. Lara was practically jumping out of his shoes to follow up. But before he could, Wood trainer Ben Davison threw in the towel, much to the dismay of Wood and the partisan fans in attendance. So Lara wins, TKO7, a sudden finish to a fantastic fight. Kieran, what's your opinion of Davison's decision? And any other thoughts on the fight, how impressed you were with either man, and and whether you think this calls for an immediate rematch? Um. I'll do with a stoppage in a second. I, I will say, you know, until that point, I was really impressed with what a terrific fight it was It was turning into. Uh, I was very impressed with both guys, and especially Wood, honestly. I even made a note to myself um, to the effect of I didn't know that Wood had this in him, uh, as I had made Lara, you know, the, the favorite going in and indeed the book he's had. I thought that Wood's punches were fast and sharp. He was throwing some pretty good combinations. He definitely hurt Lara a couple of times including to the body. Um, and I really thought the rounds five, six and 95% of round seven, he'd really gotten into a good groove there. Um, his left hook was landing with frequency and authority, but well, maybe he was putting a little bit too much faith in that. Um, Cause Lara's a hell of a puncher and you know what they say about hooking with a hooker. Um, absolute peach of a left hook from Lara, just absolutely beautiful punch. Um, Wood's eyes look, decidedly crossed as he lay on the canvas trying to peel himself uh, off of it and i didn't think he'd beat the count actually looking by the way he was struggling initially but he did and although he wasn't reacting with particular sharpness to the referee he was responding um as you know i generally veer very much on the better safe than sorry tomorrow is another day school of stopping fights but i was very surprised when that towel came in um, and the manner of Wood's immediate response to Davison doing that, the, the, the way in which he was able to respond fairly vehemently, suggested that he probably had just about enough about him to at least try to fend Lara off for the final part of that round. It is much too easy for those of us who aren't in the ring to say, oh, give him a chance. You know, we might have gotten stopped, but you have to give him the chance because we're not the ones getting our brains jerked around in our heads. And one punch can make a tremendous difference. But... By the same token, this is what they've signed up for. And we have seen boxes come back from worse. I don't know. Look, Davison, it's, I feel it's always different when a trainer throws in the towel rather than the referee stopping it. I, I don't know. Maybe Davison must have seen something that triggered him. Maybe he wasn't somehow paying attention to what, how much time is left. 
I don't hate it, but I do think that Lee would deserve the opportunity to try and make it to the end of the round at least and then see if he could recover it in the minute it's break. And yeah, I would like to see a, a rematch. I, I, I don't like contractually mandated rematches, but this is a, a situation where perhaps for both guys, it would be a, a really good fight to have. But how about you? I mean, unlike me, you're a man who's known to have a, an opinion about a stoppage from time to time. Uh, wow, I was thinking about you when this happened. So I think I know the answer, but you might surprise me. What did you think of this one? And, and do you have anything else to say about the fight? Well, I guess I'll say about the stoppage that I'm definitely not as opinionated about it as our friend Caleb Truax. I don't know if you saw his tweet. But he, no. He tweeted, that's the worst corner stoppage I've ever seen. Unexplainable by Ben Davidson. Ten seconds left in the round in a fight. Your guy is way ahead. If that fight continues, the ref most likely pushes back Lara for being out of the white corner. Mm. And Wood has to survive a few seconds to end the round. Awful stoppage. Uh, now, those are strong words. Uh I do think it's a correct observation about how if Davison was paying attention to what Lara was doing, he might mm. have thought there was a good chance the ref is going to give Lara a big shove back and, and tell him to wait, uh, especially in Britain with a British fighter. It would not have been mm. unusual to see the referee buy the hurt British fighter a little bit of time. Uh, mm. and, and it would have been justified here because Lara was out of his out of the corner where he shouldn't have been and, and needed to be given a good shove back. Uh, but look, I actually I get why Davison did it in that he saw those legs under wood. They, they weren't right. Uh, he right. wasn't totally ready to defend himself. I, the ref probably would have been well justified to stop it himself at the end of the eight count before Davidson had to make his decision. Um, yeah, I, I think Davidson acted a little rashly. It was probably the wrong decision. Probably should have given his guy a chance. But I don't feel anywhere near as strongly about it as Caleb Truax does. Mm. Um, I have I have three other quick observations on this fight. First, uh, Mauricio Lara has established himself as one of the most dangerous punchers in the sport and an all-time example of why we'd be smart to just ignore early career losses most of the yeah. time. Um, sort of like Oshaki Foster. Who, who he was then isn't who he is now. Um, yeah. Second, Lee Wood has entered the discussion for most exciting fighter on the planet. Uh, yeah. he, has, he has that style, that determination, that toughness. Um, and third, I had some fun uh, in-game betting this fight, um, and, and I got kind of lucky on a move designed just to play it safe. After the first round... Wood was plus 170 at DraftKings. Uh, I was impressed with how he looked in that opening round, and I figured it was worth a small bet on him. After round six, after the odds had ping-ponged around quite a bit all fight, suddenly Lara was a plus 360 underdog. And not that I thought he was going to win at that point, but I was now in a position to bet the other side and, and lock in a guaranteed profit. And it's a good thing I did instead of waiting another round and like waiting for his price to get a little longer or something. I just kind of got lucky with the timing there. And uh, as a result, I came out a pizza ahead overall instead of a pizza behind. Nice. Yes. That'll do. Um, later in the day, Saturday, from Pomona, California, two-division former titleist Luis Neri took on tough veteran Isaac Hovenissian in a scheduled 12-rounder. Um, most viewed it as a promising style matchup, and it delivered. Uh, the action was non-stop. The fight was about even through nine rounds until Neri put Hovenissian on the canvas late in round 10. Uh, he just barely made it out of the round, but then Neri heard him again and forced the ref's intervention at 151 of round 11. Eric, as we sort of alluded to earlier, we've had a lot of excellent fights already this year. Yeah. Is this one the new frontrunner for fight of the year in your view? And any quick opinions on where Neri and Hovenissian are at this point of their careers coming out of this savage fight? 
So what I've been saying about the great fights that we've seen so far this year, every time I've been saying something to the effect of that could be the fight of the year so far, although I can't see it holding up. It'll, it'll end up honorable mention somewhere. I keep saying that. This one, Neri Hovhannisian, this is most definitely the fight of the year so far. And I could see it holding up. Um, I'm not saying it will. We have, you know, ten and a half months to go. Uh, but but this one has a chance. This was just brutal stuff, especially for Hovhannisian. He took tons of punishment and, and looked at mess as it wore on. And if there's one good reason this doesn't quite feel like it should win fight of the year, it would be that even though the fight was very close on the cards, even though Neri took plenty of shots, it never quite felt in doubt to me that Neri was going to win. He, he always seemed a half notch better and he seemed confident in himself and that confidence extended to the viewer or, or at least to me as a viewer. Um, great action. Definitely fight of the year level drama, maybe a tiny bit short there, but uh, I will say if someone splices together a supercut of just the final 15 seconds of every round, <laughs> you'll think this was Barrera Morales or something. Almost every round had a, a fantastic all action finish. Anyway, massive credit to Hovhannisian for his toughness. Um, he's somewhere between club fighter and contender. He's certainly not an elite 122 pounder, but they just don't come much more game and gutsy. And I hope he takes a long vacation after this. Uh, I, yeah. I do worry this is the sort of fight that leaves a man not quite the same afterward. As for Neri, the fact that this was such a tough fight confirms what his loss to Brandon Figueroa suggested, that, that his best days are well behind him. He's only 28, but he's not what he once was at 118 pounds. And he's in line to fight the Inouye Fulton winner. I don't have much desire to see that. Neri's still a fine fighter, but I don't think he can keep up with either of those guys. Not if he's getting into fight of the year caliber fights against the likes of Hovhannisian. All right. So the, the night before all that, there was a showbox triple header Friday from Topeka, Kansas, that saw a little bit of everything. A quick knockout, a close and action-packed 10-round brawl that ended in a split decision, and a not-as-close and not-as-action-packed 10-rounder that somehow also ended at a split decision. Uh, let's start with that somewhat puzzlingly scored junior middleweight main event where the body types largely defined the style of the fight with skinny six foot two inch Ardriel Bossman Holmes trying to box from distance and move and hold when necessary while the much shorter Ismail Milo Villarreal tried to get inside and land power shots. It was Holmes who ultimately won, but by narrow scores of 97-93 and 96-94, with one card improbably going the other way, 96-94, that card costing me a perfect score of three points in our picks competition, <laughs> but I'll take my two points to your zero for taking a shot on Villarreal to extend my lead to 16-13. Uh, some additional bookkeeping Villarreal suffers his first loss. He's now 12-1, and while Holmes improves to 13-0, and and we get to say at least the right guy won. Kieran, tell me what you saw, what you thought of each boxer's performance, your level of bafflement at the split decision, and is Holmes, despite improving to 2-0 on Showbox, wearing out his welcome with his fighting style? You know, it's funny. I had an assessment of this fight in my head at the final bell, and then the scorecards were read out, and I thought... Did I miss something? And I, <laughs> right. Was I being influenced by Steve and the boys ringside who saw it very clearly one way? Because that was the way I saw it also. Um, I mean, I guess having said that, two of the cards went super far away from mine. I had it 98, 92, but that was 
being kind and looking for rounds to give to Villarreal, to be honest. Um, mm. I don't know that it was possible to make it much closer. Um, the assessment I had in my head before those scorecards is that I was a bit underwhelmed by both guys. Um, you know, I, I likened Villarreal style to a young Miguel Cotto, and but there's no way a young Cotto would allow Holmes to get away with what he did in that in that fight. Sure, Cotto could struggle against lanky movers, but he never just trotted after them around the wing the way the way that Villarreal did yeah. for far too much of that contest. I had said in the preview I wouldn't be surprised if Villarreal fell down by three or four rounds and then worked his way back, and I was half right. Um, uh, I was disappointed that he just never really seemed to step forward, really step into his jab, to attack from angles, to do anything to make life uncomfortable for Holmes. And yes, again, I recognize it's incredibly easy for me to sit here and say that, and it's an entirely different undertaking to execute that, um, especially against a guy who boxes as long as Holmes does. But it was underwhelming, and he showed in the 10th round that he had it, had it in him to, take, to up the pace, to force it, to rough things up a bit if he wanted to. And he honestly needed to be doing that earlier. And had he done, according to the judges' scorecards, look, he was only one round away from a draw. So I would have liked to have seen more from him but, you know, to get to your point about Holmes, I think what bugged me about Holmes's approach, as much as anything, was the fact that the moment the fight became even close to being fought at close range, he turned into late career Bernard Hopkins in there, turning automatically to holding and spoiling and doing whatever he could. And look, on the one hand, I get it. And he deserves credit. You know, you could say, hey, he's got a sage old head on his young shoulders. He knows what it takes to win. But at this stage of his career, on this platform, I'm not sure that just winning is enough. This is when people form their first opinions of you. Yep. And opinions, I think, probably are going to harden against wanting to see Holmes on TV if he boxes like this repeatedly. And again, it's a win. And that was what he needed to do. But he was boxing as if he had every round in the bag. And that's always dangerous. And it very nearly cost him a win on the official cards. Look, we know that Gordon Hall really likes to give talented boxers of all stripes opportunities and sometimes several opportunities to show their stuff um win or lose you know he'll bring them back if they lose if they look good but at the same time he wants viewers to be entertained um especially right now where with everything that's going on with paramount i'm sure showtime boxing is having to prove it that it belongs you know and and that people want to watch it so um yeah it was a win for holmes but I think he needs to show more if he's going to get further opportunities on TV in the near future. And, and Villarreal, I think, definitely blew an opportunity here to make a bit more of a statement himself. Yeah, uh, I, I really did not enjoy this fight aesthetically. Yeah. Um, and, and it was Raul who compared Holmes uh, fighting off the ropes at one point to Chris Bird. And I mm. was thinking, like, am I just not a true connoisseur of the sweet science? Should I be enjoying this more than I am? I will say Holmes finished strongly. Uh, you talked about the 10th round. Really, the last three rounds, he was landing some of his better, cleaner, harder shots. I'm in a place with him where I'm not opposed to seeing him again, but I'm certainly not clamoring for it either. Um, and as far as the scoring, surprise to nobody. I had it 98-92, same as you. 97-93 okay. <laughs> um, seems just fine. Any closer than that, I disagree with. But... I think I do understand what the judges were thinking here. Even the 96-94 score for Villarreal. I disagree with it, but it isn't one of those fights where I'm completely mystified by the score. Holmes was just so negative at times, mm. you know, holding whenever Villarreal got close, moving away, that I guess it doesn't seem impossible to find six rounds where you just say, 
nope, I, I can't give that round to him if he's fighting that way. I don't think it's mm. good judging, but I can at least see the reasoning behind it. But uh, but look, not a fun fight. We've probably said more about it already than it merits. Yeah, fair enough. Let's let's get to some better ones um, on that card. Uh, the co-feature was also a 10-round split decision, but this one actually warranted a split decision, and it was a lot more fun to watch than the main event. Um, by the way, Edward Kid Vasquez improved to 14 and 1, while Misael Lopez slipped to 14 and 2. As a flash knockdown in the second round made a difference on the cards. Uh, one judge scored at 96 93 for Vasquez, while the other two were split 95 94 in each direction. Eric, did the right fighter get his hand raised? How entertaining did you find this fight? Um, and any thoughts on the ceilings of these prospects or where they should go from here? I'll start with the middle question about how entertaining it was. I love this fight. Uh, just a, a fantastic style matchup. Not quite the fight of the weekend. Uh, maybe not even the second best fight of the weekend, <laughs> basically. Uh, there were some slower spots here and there, but whenever they started exchanging, their punches just sort of danced together brilliantly. They, they just fit right, these two. I had a great time watching this. And uh, how about the conditioning on these guys? Neither one looked remotely tired at any point. They looked like they were in shape to go 25 rounds. Um, as for the decision, I thought they got it right. I had it 95-94 Vasquez with that knockdown indeed making the difference. And it was absolutely a correct knockdown call, despite Lopez disputing it. It was a weak knockdown. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't the hardest punch. It was not quite perfectly placed, mostly just kind of a timing and balance thing, but it was a knockdown for sure. Um, anyway, great ebb and flow to the fight. Um, a lot of tough rounds to score. A bit of a tortoise and hare matchup with, with Lopez, the flashy hare, and Vasquez just very compact, very calm. He seemed to be almost starting to pull away at the midpoint, but then Lopez boxed beautifully in round six and seven, and it truly came right down to the wire. Showbox, baby. This this was yeah. such a perfect example of a great showbox fight, and it's quite clear to me what ought to happen next. This begs for a rematch. Uh, make it a showbox main event, or maybe the opening 10-rounder on a pay-per-view. Do it again, and... If Lopez wins and it's again good and close, then complete the trilogy. And if Vasquez wins the rematch, he moves up to the next level. Neither guy jumps off the screen at me as a future champ necessarily. Uh, but who knows? They're both in their mid-20s, still improving and developing perhaps. But for now, I say make a rematch once they're recovered from this fairly grueling fight and, and then go from there. Uh, the opening bout played out quite differently than the other two. It was over in a round and a half with Kurt Scooby, who somehow reportedly weighed 215 pounds when he played college football as a running back, but is now a promising 140-pound boxer. He knocked down Australia's John Manu four times in the second round, mostly with right hands, but lastly with a body shot to prompt ref Jacob Villa to wave it off. Kieran, you know me. I can't control myself. I gotta bust out the lame puns to discuss this fight. So allow me to ask the obvious question. How did Scooby do? <laughs> well, you could see how he was doing when he landed that right hand and Manu's face immediately said, ruh roh <laughs> Okay, check that one off. Good job. <laughs> Manu had said he'd planned on coming all the way from Australia to win and he would have got away with it too if it hadn't been for that damn kid. <laughs> Man, I have I have all all these responses jotted down. If you don't use them, and you're just you're you're, you're taking a lot of my material, but I still have a couple left. I don't, are you done, or you got more? Oh no! I mean, at times it like like Manny's eyes were so wide, it was like he'd seen a ghost. <laughs> the important thing about this podcast is that we amuse ourselves at each other. Yeah. Everyone else, whatever. Um, <laughs> all right, then now I'm done. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, look, look, not a tremendous amount to say because there wasn't a, a lot, a lot of fight to comment on. But uh, I thought that Scooby showed some really good finishing instincts once he had his guy hurt. He didn't get overly excited, and most importantly, he didn't headhunt. Um, he switched his attack uh, to the body, like he said, it paid real dividends. Not least because he scored that definitive knockdown with a with a body shot, but it also left Manu just unable to anticipate where the next punch was coming from. He couldn't just put up put up the guard and, and hope for the best. Um, we didn't see a great deal of him, but especially for one who switched to boxing at a relatively late age, uh, I thought Scooby looked pretty impressive. Actually, I, I would quite like to see him some more. See, you know, see him both more and more fights and in fights that last longer. Uh, Obviously, they're very different boxes against very different opponents, but this, Adriel Holmes, is how you make sure you get invited back onto TV. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't have too much to add, but I just got to say, that last body shot, zoinks! What a punch! <laughs> and also, you know, Manu's performance was a bit shaggy, if I'm being honest. Oh, nice. All right, I'm done. That's all I got. Okay, yeah. <laughs> God, if we, if, if we have to cover this guy a lot, if it turns out he's really good, uh-huh. I mean, yeah, I just, I don't know. Have we got it out of our system? I don't think we've got it out of our no. system. No, 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 no. Well, uh, we did use up just about all there is to use, but we'll, we we will reuse. I, I don't see us not reusing some of these lines. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, let's go right from uh, this past weekend's Showtime action to next weekend's. Uh, Showtime Championship Boxing returns to the Minneapolis Armory with a triple header, all in the 140 to 147 pound range. This is a venue where the likes of Sugar Ray Robinson and Henry Armstrong both fought roughly 80 years ago. So Saturday's card probably won't showcase the best welterweight or junior welterweight ever to compete in the arena, but it does still have six talented fighters, five of whom have fought on Showtime before, most of them just a time or two. So basically fighters the audience is familiar with, but not overly so. And just to change things up, let's go in the order the bouts will unfold and, and finish with the main event rather than starting with it. Uh, we'll start with the one local fighter on the card and the one former podcast guest of ours, welterweight contender Jamal James from Minneapolis, ending a 16-month layoff since his Showtime televised defeat to Rajab Butayev. He takes on Argentina's Alberto Palmetta in a 10-round welterweight bout. Southpaw Palmetta is 18 and 1 with 13 knockouts. James is 27 and 2 with 12 KOs. These are not young fighters. Palmetta is 32 and James 34. So there's quite a bit at stake here in terms of remaining a contender. Kieran, tell us what we need to know about these fighters and weigh in a bit on the style matchup and make your pick. Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting matchup in many ways. We were talking earlier about the uh, the, the showbox main event and the physical differences in the two fighters and how that played out and we might end up with something a little bit similar here james is by some distance the taller guy at six foot one and a half which is tall for a welterweight and palmetta at five foot seven is short for a welterweight um palmetta's gonna be giving up seven and a half inches in reach and that's after facing three consecutive opponents who've actually been his height or even shorter um james is also very good at boxing tall which you think is going to make things a, a little bit more difficult even so for, for Palmetto. But conversely, it's been eight years since James faced someone as short as Palmetto. So neither guy is exactly in their comfort zone here. Um, the difference, I think, is that I, I think James is probably just in a different class here. Um, his only two losses were to Ordenis Ugas and Rajev Butayev. Um, we've seen how good Ugas is, and Butayev showed how good he is by giving Amantis Danionis a terrific scrap in his next outing. James has wins over the likes of Antonio DeMarco, Thomas Dulorme, Diego Chavez. 
But at the age of 32, who is Palmetto's biggest win? Yay Solano? Krishan Wiggins? I think this is going to be tough for Palmetto. Um, I think he obviously he wants to try to get inside, but he's not actually a massive puncher. He's more of kind of like a boxer puncher. And he's going to want to try to work his way inside, but I just think he's going to have a, a hard time doing that. Yeah, James lost last time out, and it was a tough, a tough loss, but he's been looking pretty good and operating at a higher level, and I think he probably has enough in him here to control this from the outside and score a unanimous decision win. All right. You you had a much easier time picking a winner here than, oh, okay. than, than I am having. I, I this is To me, this is a hell of an opener in terms of me not really having a clue who to pick to win. Um, I'm not sure how great it'll be stylistically, uh, you know, how fan-friendly it'll mm-hmm. be. But just in terms of making an even matchup, I really had trouble identifying a clear favorite here. James definitely has way more experience at the top, as you mentioned. But he's also been in more tough fights. He, he could mm-hmm. be an old-ish 34, while Palmetta is a very young 32. Um, I have a lot of questions. You know, how much did the Butaya fight take out of James? How much will the 16-month layoff affect him? Can Palmetta deal with that huge height and reach difference that, that you mentioned and, and get close enough to land his shots? But then again, he, he's quick. He's light on his feet. Maybe it's the reverse question. Can James fight mm-hmm. long effectively and, and keep Palmetta off him? And then the question of, you know, if because Palmetta is only a so-so puncher, if he fails to, to really hurt James, if he can't score a knockout or at least some knockdowns, can he win a competitive decision in Minneapolis? I'm full of questions on this fight. I don't have too many answers. I keep going back and forth. And my f- instinct at first actually was to take the fresher guy, Palmetta, and say that he's he's too fast, too slick, just hitting his prime while James may be fading. But then I thought about it some more and decided that after some time off, coming off a defeat, fighting in front of his hometown fans, James is really going to dig deep and bring it and pull out his best performance in a while. So... Like you, I am picking Jamal James. I'm going to say, though, that he has to rally late to win a split decision. All right. Uh, The co-feature is also a 10-rounder, this one at 140 pounds. And it features two hard-hitting young fighters with one loss apiece who have in common their history as prospects who are released by top rank. 27-year-old Elvis Rodriguez is probably the more highly touted of the two prospects. He's 13-1-1 with 12 KOs. He's trained by Freddie Roach. Uh, we saw him stop Juan Jose Velasco in seven rounds on Showtime Championship Boxing last March. He meets 23-year-old Joseph Adorno from near your neck of the woods, Eric, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Adorno is 17-1-2 with 14 KOs. His one loss came 11 months ago on Showtime Championship Boxing against Michelle Rivera, but he came back in September in a showbox main event and eked out a decision over Hugo Roldan. Eric, break down the matchup, make your pick. Tell us who wins and comes one step closer to making top rank regret breaking up with him. So this is another really tough call for me, Uh, a very even matchup on paper. Elvis Rodriguez probably is the slightly more gifted fighter, to use Roy Jones's least favorite word. Uh, (laughs) But but Adorno has faced better competition. He's more tested, seems maybe the slightly more reliable guy. One thing about this matchup, they're both punchers. 26 knockouts in 30 combined wins. Both of these guys can pop and they can finish. Rodriguez is a southpaw, but he's naturally right-handed, and that shows in that his right hook is his most dangerous power punch. He throws it beautifully as a counter, as a lead. He can really do damage with it. But that said, Adorno does have experience against southpaws and switch hitters. I I don't think the stance should cause him too much trouble. Uh, 
Elvis has talent, no doubt, uh, but he hasn't taken on great competition. Uh, he has two wins since the loss to Kenny Sims, but neither proved much. He was a minus 1,400 favorite uh, going into that fight with Velasco last time out. Adorno definitely represents a step up for him, and Adorno has an edge in terms of activity. He last fought five months ago, whereas Rodriguez is coming off the longest layoff of his career, 11 months. Adorno's trainer, Chino Rivas, weighed in on the matchup. Uh, granted, he's not impartial, uh, but he said, uh, Elvis is strong but flat-footed. He doesn't have quickness or footwork. This is an easier fight than Roldan was. Uh, well, uh, for Adorno to win, it'll have to be, since he won the Roldan <laughs> fight by one point, boosted by a critical flash knockdown. But I kind of believe Rivas here. Uh, Adorno is somewhat battle-hardened and ready for this, and Rodriguez... I think top rank may have known what they were doing when they let him go. So mm. I'll say Adorno is the one who leaves top rank feeling possible regrets. I think he hurts Rodriguez a time or two and pushes harder down the stretch, out hustles and out wills him. Adorno by competitive unanimous decision. Yeah, I also find this a tough call. Um, neither man has super impressed lately. Um, I think what we've seen of Adorno um, with the fights that you mentioned, like Rivera and Roldan, I think we can say that we have a pretty good sense of who he is and where he is and what his ceiling is. He, he yeah. feels to me to be the definition of a fringe contender, right? Mm -hmm. He's unlikely to beat the very genuine contenders, but he's also, he's not a doormat. He's, he's not just an opponent. Um, he's somebody who's always going to be around the edges there. But I, I don't think... We quite know yet what Rodriguez is, but I think he might actually be a step below that. Um, it's difficult not to picture that loss to uh, to our buddy Kenneth Sims yeah. and the rapidity with which Top Rank released him after that fight was telling. Um, it was almost as if they were looking for an opportunity to be rid of him, um, and, and they said afterwards. Uh, somebody at Top Rank said, "Well, you know, he's. It was based on his most recent performances. He's kind of a front runner." Um, I don't know that either man is going to make top rank regret releasing him, but I do think Adorno has it in him to withstand Rodriguez's power and to outbox him and possibly by the end outbox him fairly handily. Uh, I agree with you here. I have uh, Joseph Adorno scoring a unanimous decision win. Okay, uh, now to the main event, which gives us the fighter we're most familiar with on this card, Subriel Matias, whose three most recent fights have all been on Showtime Championship Boxing, against the fighter we're least familiar with, Jeremias Ponce, the only boxer on this show who's never fought on Showtime. Uh, Ponce from Argentina is 26 years old, 30-0 and 0 with 20 knockouts. Matias of Puerto Rico is a bit older at 30. His record is 18-1 and 1 with all 18 wins by KO. This is a 12-rounder for a vacant 140-pound belt. And uh, I'll be nice, Kieran. I'll give you the easier assignment, asking you to provide insights on the fighter we know well. What do you like about Matias? What don't you like so much? And does he seem like a guy who's ready to make a leap? He isn't showing any great insight here to say that what I like about Matias is his whole action style. You know what you're getting with Matias. He isn't someone to necessarily take his time working his way into the fight but behind a jab he hits the turbo button pretty early and he's going to come right at you um he tends to batter opponents into defeat um throw in punches from all angles um and very difficult to time he's he's like a smaller more refined version of ricardo mayorga in some respects um the flip side of that 
is that he can be a little bit two-faced first, a, a little easy in theory to hit if you're someone who's able to punch between his punches. But the difficulty is in translating that theoretical possibility into actual results because Matias is such a handful to deal with. He's so strong and so relentless and punches with such focused aggression that it, it's really hard to get off against him. Is he ready to make a leap? That's a difficult one because of how stacked the top of that 140-pound rankings are. Could he be say Josh Taylor or Regis Progre or Tiafimo Lopez. I'm not so sure. Um, then again, I use the Mayorga analogy, and theoretically, Mayorga had no business twice beating Vernon Forrest, right. but he did. Um, and although he ultimately proved to be you know, well below the likes of uh, Trinidad and Cotto and De La Hoya, he got in his licks during those most of the fights when he faced those guys, and he could never be truly written off. That's somewhat how I see Matias, able to bowl over and beat down a lot of folks but perhaps the underdog, if not an overwhelming underdog, against the very, very best in the division. He's already probably top 10 in that division. Right. Um, so moving up further would seem more of a gradual improvement than elite, but such is the quality at the top of the division that moving up to that level would be a leap. And I'm just, I don't know whether he's quite ready to do that yet. Um, I think he's probably ready to be competitive at that top level. I'm not sure if he's ready to start beating those guys at that top level, but all of that said... He's got to get past Ponce first. I'm not sure how easy that will be. Um, he is the unknown quantity here, Ponce. But you've studied him to the extent you can heading into his U.S. debut. What do we need to know about him? What sort of style and strength and weaknesses does he bring to the table? So Ponce doesn't have a lot of meaningful wins on his record. Uh, 25 of his 30 fights have been in his native Argentina. He's beaten a lot of opponents you've never heard of. The one exception, in June 2021, he faced solid British contender Lewis Ritson. And largely dominated the fight and, and stopped Ritson in the 10th round. I watched that fight, plus clips of one other fight, and that's all I could find on him. Two fights. Uh, and here's my scouting report. Uh, for starters, Ponce is aggressive. He looks for the knockout. When he gets a guy hurt, he fires away. For better and worse, he, he does tend mm -hmm. to get a bit wild and, and defensively irresponsible. He's not especially fast-handed. In fact... He's somewhat gangly. Uh, his frame reminds mm. me of like a bigger Leo Santa Cruz. He just, you know, there, there are silky smooth athletic boxers out there. And uh, and Ponce isn't one of them. Uh, that said, <laughs> he has an excellent jab when he uses it. And his best weapon is his body punching uh, with both hands, but especially the left hook to the liver. But, but with both hands, he really digs in. And, and those body shots, those are the punches that hurt and dropped Ritson. I wish I could tell you more. But there just isn't much else to tell you. Uh, he, he's been knocked down once in his career, but I can't really draw conclusions about his chin one way or the other, given his level of opposition. He has a nice record. He seems to make entertaining fights. But is he ready for Matias? I have no idea. Maybe you do, Kieran. Uh, we'll, we'll know more about Ponce after Saturday. But for the moment, we don't know a ton. But we have to make picks anyway. Uh, so uh, you're up, Kieran. Uh, make your pick on this one. I've seen exactly by the sounds of it as much of Ponce as you have. Um, I quite liked what I saw. Uh, you know, he looks well-schooled. He looks composed most of the most of the time. Like you said, he can uh, get a little carried away at times with his offense. You mentioned his jab. I really like the look of that jab of his. It's a, it's a nice, stiff, strong, punishing jab. Um, stylistically, he could be a really difficult opponent for Matthias. Um you know, I said in theory, Matias is vulnerable to someone who can stand up to him and punch between his punches. I do think Ponce, with that wonderfully stiff jab of his, might be able to do it. But oh, I 
I'm so tempted to want to go and pick like the upset special here, but it would be almost irresponsible to do it based yeah. on so little knowledge. I kind of, part of me feels, I look at him and I think, oh man, this guy's got a tough style. He could be one of these guys who comes in as the unknown and pulls off the upset here. And we realize that it's not that he isn't good. We just hadn't seen him before. And I kind of have a feeling that that might be the case with Ponce. But I can't pull the trigger on that based on having seen so little of him. So I'm going to go as far as to say that I think Ponce will give Matias a bit of a rough go of it, actually, because I think he's got those good straight punches. And Matias might be a little bit too over aggressive at times and walk into some of them. But Matias has the experience. He's dug deep before. He's fought a better, better type of opposition. Ponce's been out of the ring for 20 months. Um, I think that might be a factor as well. I think Matias is going to have a harder time than maybe we expect. I'm really tempted to pick the upset special, but I think that ultimately Matias overwhelms him and stops him in round 11. Okay. Uh, so I'm a pretty big Matias fan. I, I've been increasingly impressed with him. Uh, of, of all the fighters on this card, he clearly to me has the highest ceiling. And so this is actually the easiest of the three fights for me to pick a winner which isn't saying much given how much I struggled on the first two, but still it, it's, it's the only one really that to me isn't somewhat close to a toss up. Ponce appears dangerous. Certainly he, he can land some big wild shot and, and win this thing. But barring that, I, I just think he's too raw. The speed and slickness of Matias should give him all sorts of trouble. Again, you know, there's some degree of fear of the unknown with Ponce, but I, I think I've seen enough to say that I would be surprised if Matias doesn't overwhelm him. So like you, I'm picking Subriel Matias by stoppage. I'll say a little earlier, I'll say stoppage in round eight. All righty. Um, there are assorted other minor fights next weekend, but the only one really worth drilling down on takes place Sunday, February 26th in Saudi Arabia, available in the U.S. as an ESPN pay-per-view. Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury, eight rounds in the cruiserweight division. Paul is 6-0, Fury is 8-0, someone's O has to go, unless it doesn't because it's a draw or no contest. And as long as they do finally make it into the ring, of course, which is no certainty after several failed attempts to make this happen. Um, and a week ago, Fury did no show at press conference. Uh, <laughs> but let's presume the fight will indeed take place. Eric, how much do you actually care at this point? And do you have any last thoughts on how it will play out? I do still care. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm intrigued. Although the closer it gets, the more convinced I become that Tommy Fury is not good at all and that Jake Paul actually should be a solid favorite here. You know, when it was first suggested, it seemed on paper like Paul could be biting off more than he could chew. Then we saw Fury fight on a shared card and he was beyond ordinary. Uh, then more time passed. Paul kept improving. And so it just doesn't feel like the dangerous step up to face a quote unquote real boxer that it once did. But it is still Jake Paul versus a professional boxer. So I care about the result. Do I care enough to buy it on pay-per-view when <laughs> company bias here? Uh, it isn't on Showtime pay-per-view. We don't necessarily need to watch it in order to properly do our job. I don't know. Uh, I may be perfectly good with following along on Twitter, mm. reading the result, finding some highlights if there are any, and, and that's it. Uh, but anyway, clearly I'm predicting a Jake Paul victory, but probably not by KO. I I'm guessing it goes the eight-round distance, and, and Paul wins by a wide margin, and Fury is maybe just trying to survive at the end. If Jake Paul does indeed knock him out or really dominate him, That'll be a statement, you know, in, in the relative Jake Paul universe. Um, look, I remain impressed with how far he's come already and how seriously he's taken this. 
But unfortunately, I don't think much of Tommy Fury and, and a close decision win for Jake Paul won't really move the needle much. Um, but, I, you know, I guess good for Jake Paul for setting the bar at, at a medium level after six fights. It's it's kind of makes a statement that the bar is not all the way at the bottom the way it was one or two fights into his career. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, yeah, I think there's a reason to follow on from your point. There's a reason that Jake Paul has been trying very hard to make this fight. Um, and I think it's because he's not a mug. He's seen the same things that we've seen when watching right. Tommy Fury, that Tommy Fury can't box. Right. Um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, but at the same time, he's answering that demand for people. Face a real pro boxer, he's doing that. Um, for a 6-0 and guy to face an 8-0 and guy... That's that's a perfectly fine matchup. Um, it's not his fault that the Tommy Fury's opponents have been universally awful, and he hasn't looked great with them. That's you know that's just the way it is. Um, so yes, I'm like you. I do expect Paul to win. Um, I guess if there's any intrigue here, it's that he's never been hit by someone who is used to firing punches from a boxing stance. Sure. Um, and maybe that makes it interesting. You know, that's that's the element in there. Um, obviously, there's the family thing. Uh, have uh, have John and Tyson Fury been watching anything of Jake Paul? Do they have some good good tips? Are they are they going to be able to help him out? Or I don't know. Based on uh, on uh, Tyson's reaction in the crowd when uh, the two of them went at it in the ring, uh, I think he's just looking for a good laugh. Actually, Tyson Fury. <laughs> right. He has to leave Tommy behind inside Saudi Arabia. I don't think he particularly cares, to be honest. <laughs> um, so I don't know. So yes, I'm intrigued somewhat. I probably also won't buy it, but I don't, know, I don't have a spare of the moment thing, uh, and we'll see. But yeah, I do pick Jake Paul to to win this fairly convincingly, and that says a lot about Jake Paul, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And and the work that he has put into it um, uh, to to sort of move himself along bit by bit by bit. Yeah. Uh, look, and maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe Paul versus Fury will be a classic. And in a few years, it'll be the answer to a round of the fight game. You like that nice. transition? Nice. <laughs> this week, however, Kieran, it is not the answer. Uh, that's that's your okay. first clue. Uh, it's not <laughs> Paul Fury, a fight that hasn't happened yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. Make your first okay. guess. No, just kidding. All right. Paul Silver. <laughs> Okay, uh, sorry. Oh no, that was his brother. Okay, never mind. Right. Okay, all right, all right. Let's let's play the fight game for real. Are you are you ready for your actual first clue? Oh, I'm never ready for the first clue, but here we go. Okay, yeah, I'm giving it to you anyway. Okay. okay, for the second time in a row, I'm giving you a fight that was named Fight of the Year, and this one headlined a Showtime pay per view. Okay, Fight of the Year that headlined a Showtime pay per view. Is Holyfield Tyson two a fight of the year? Uh, not two, but one. Maybe you're thinking of uh, one. I, I mean, yes. right, right. Uh, that I, I, I was suspecting. I was predicting that might be your guess, and that is not correct. <laughs> but it, I figured when when one thinks Showtime pay per view headliner that is a yes. fight of the year, that's where one goes. So a fine guess, right. not the answer to this question. Okay, this, uh, that's officially my first guess, though. Okay, okay. all right. On the televised undercard, we had Stevie Johnston, Yuri Boy Campus, Mia St. John, and Butterbean. Okay, so it's a top rank card. Mm -hmm. And it gives you a and pretty good sense of the era. Yeah, mid to late 90s 
possibly early 2000s. Was it Holyfield Tyson one? <laughs> oh, I thought I thought I thought we were counting Holyfield Tyson one as your official. Uh, oh, as we your are. Official we are. Guest I, just, I just feel like oh, you're just trying it again. Yeah. In case, what if I changed it in the middle and decided? You know what? That is correct. <laughs> it still is not Holyfield Tyson one. Do you do you have another guess in mind, or uh, should we uh, should we move on to clue three? It's a Showtime pay per view. I. Don't yet. Don't have a guess yet. Okay. All right. I, this one may give it to you. It may not. We'll see. Uh, as I said, it was named Fight of the Year. The winner was named Fighter of the Year that year, at least by the Ring magazine. But despite being the Fighter of the Year who won a Fight of the Year, he is not a Hall of Famer. The loser of the fight, however, is a Hall of Famer. Was this a fight that ideally should have been in... Am I thinking of the right fight? Were both fighters from the same town or the same state? They were not. They were not. They were not. And now now I'm thinking maybe I know what fight you're thinking of. And am I close? Am I just getting confused? If, if you're thinking of the fight that I think you're thinking of, then you actually are kind of close. Quite close. Oh, I got I got one fighter right and the other fighter wrong. Yes. Paulie Ayala. Yep. And Johnny Tapia. That is correct. Yes, uh, it is. I the... actually wasn't sure that I didn't know that that was a Showtime pay per view, or that it was a top ranked card, but. Uh, it just kind of, yeah, okay. And I was thinking of what's it, Paulie Ayala and um, what was the other guy's name? Oh, you were that. So that's interesting that you. I thought maybe you were thinking of Johnny Tapia and Danny Romero when you Johnny said Romero, same state. That's no, that's what I. Oh, okay, I'm that was what you were thinking. That was okay. how I got confused. Yes. Okay. Yes. So you had Tapia right, and then you came around to the correct answer. It was the first fight between Paulie Ayala and Johnny Tapia, and I'll I'll give you what the other clues would have been. I I think number four probably would have given it away unless this fight was just like totally escaping your memory entirely clue for the winner won this 1999 fight by scores of 116 113 twice and 115 114 it was close but not controversial when they fought a rematch 16 months later the same fighter won 115 113 twice and 116 112 but the result was highly controversial i think i think you would have gotten there that, actually, wouldn't, that have wouldn't have helped. No, oh, interesting. You forgot they had a rematch that was controversial. I actually did. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, they did. They did, and uh, I think Tapia kind of got robbed in the rematch. Um, okay. And the the fifth clue uh, would have been the winner was a Southpaw from Fort Worth, Texas, who has the same first name as Rocky's brother-in-law. The okay. loser of this fight <laughs> is a native of the town where Breaking Bad is set, and his okay. crazy life ended in 2012. Okay. Yes, that I would have got it on five. <laughs> okay. Good. Good to know. But in yeah, fact, you could have helped me a bit. But I would have got it on five. Interesting. Okay. And it doesn't matter because you got it on three. <sighs> okay. We're doing pretty good at getting it around the. It is. It is kind of our version of Wordle. We it really get is. Get it around three oh four. Yes. Yes. That's. It's funny. My. Um, you know, at the end of every Wordle, I get the little pop-up of my all-time stats. And my, my little game within a game with myself is I'm I'm trying to have more threes than fours. The fours okay. are, are slightly ahead of the threes at the, at the moment, but uh, that's my little battle. And almost to the point that I want to tank it on the fourth guess and get a five to help my stats there. But... <laughs> uh, yes, we have interesting lives. <laughs> We're very cool people.
<laughs> deeply, deeply cool. Deeply cool. Um, let's move on to the news, shall yes, we? Yes, yes. Um, this week's main event is of the legal variety. Uh, as we wait, uh, refreshing social media every five minutes or less to hear the <laughs> word of Javante Davis versus Ryan Garcia getting finalized, uh, we at least learned Thursday that one possible impediment to the fight happening in April should not be an impediment. In fact, Davis pled guilty to four counts related to a 2020 hit and run car accident, and his sentencing hearing is now set for May 5th. So as with Floyd Mayweather fighting Miguel Cotto a decade ago while knowing that jail time was coming, the timing worked out that Davis can fight Garcia on April 15th and then deal with any potential jail time afterward. Um, What are you hearing about what sort of sentence length might await Tank? And focusing purely on the boxing side of things, how confident should we be that we are still going to get Davis Garcia before then? So according to legal experts, uh, it, it is my understanding the sentence will likely be between four months and a year, somewhere in that rather wide range. And, and whatever he gets, you know, with good behavior, the actual jail time could end up being shorter than that. But probably reasonable to assume that if Tank fights on April 15th, uh, which would be his second fight this year, of course, recall he fought in January, there most likely won't be a third one in 2023, given the timing of all that. And um, look, based on our understanding of, of what happened, this was just a stupid, immature crime. It, it was the fleeing of the scene that was the major crime. If if he doesn't do that, if he gets out of his car and checks on the people who were injured and waits for the cops to show up, he's not going to jail. Um, yeah. But What's done is done, and the timing of everything is cooperating to allow him to fight Ryan Garcia. And I think we said this last week, uh, but I'll say it again this week. It's quite possible that by the time you hear this podcast, (laughs) this fight will officially be on. It's been reported that the fighters now have signed the contracts. The rematch-related bickering has been resolved. There are just some final signatures needed, and then boxing will get this fight it badly needs. Then there's a whole separate discussion to be had about whether jail time hanging over his head will affect Gervonta's training or performance. But, you know, we'll have time to theorize about that. For now, the news is not great for Gervonta Davis, the person, but in terms of his boxing career, the big fight sure seems to be coming, and uh, and then a bit of a layoff will follow. Uh, we have a lot of other news to cover this week, so let's break the undercard into two parts. Uh, news concerning upcoming fights, and random other stuff. Uh, Here's the upcoming fight news. We already knew that Josh Taylor and Teofimo Lopez were negotiating for a 140-pound championship fight, and that bout became perhaps slightly more likely with the news this week that one alphabet group has ordered it. Jamal Charlo doesn't have an exact date or an opponent yet, but he announced that his long layoff will end in June, uh, two years after his most recent fight. The Virgil ortiz Amantes Stanionis fight has a date and a location, April 29th in Arlington, Texas. Chris Eubank Jr. has triggered the rematch clause in his contract with Liam Smith, so they'll presumably face each other again soon. And lastly, you'll recall Breadman noting on last week's podcast that he'd heard Sebastian Fundora versus Brian Mendoza was in the works. Another recent guest of ours, Dan Raphael, reports now that he too is hearing that fight is coming April 8th on Showtime. Kieran, what among these items has your attention? Um, Brian Mendoza is a, a pretty decent fight for Fundora right now. Not a great one. Um, look, Mendoza looked good 
uh, stopping Jason Rosario, but Rosario's punch resistance has been shattered for the last couple of years. But, you know, we all got very excited about our boy Sebastian Fundora after his win over Lubin. And then he showed that he's still a work in progress against mm-hmm. Carlos Acampo. He's, he's still only 25. So incremental steps, which is what I think he's getting here with Brian Mendoza, aren't a bad thing by any means. Um, I don't know what's been happening with Jamal Charlo. It seems that he's been dealing with some personal issues. I hope he's in a better place now and able to uh, get back with his career and certainly look forward to seeing him back in the ring. We certainly missed seeing him. Mm. Um, I talked earlier about rematch clauses. Eubank Smith too, as a reminder of how much they suck. Um, this isn't Haney Cambosis too. There's a genuine chance that Eubank will win a rematch. <laughs> right. But Smith deserves an opportunity to go in a different direction if he wants to. Um, one person who probably does wish he had a rematch clause is Jack Carroll. <laughs> what um, a reminder this is, is also of how important it is for judges to get it right when they have the opportunity, because Jack Carroll should have won that fight against Joss Taylor. And now Taylor's getting the big matchup with Teofimo Lopez. Um, Taylor had that terrific 2018 and 2019, but then we saw him for just a couple of minutes in a horrendous mismatch in 2020. Then he had that very good win over Jose Ramirez, which he nearly threw away. Uh, in 2021, and, and then the disputed win over Catterall last year, uh, we're not seeing enough of Josh Taylor um, no. at all. And and it's it's not good for somebody at that level, and particularly that time of his career, to only be having a fight a year. Um, my suspicion is that Taylor probably just had an off night against Catterall, and for all that I was, for a long time, one of those who was at the front steering the hype train about Tiafimo Lopez, uh, I think that Tartan Tornado is Star's favorite, should that matchup actually be confirmed. But we will, of course, talk about that more nearer the time. Um, the random other stuff you mentioned, and nothing says random other stuff more than Adrian Bronner, <laughs> whose BLK prime debut remains snake-bitten, uh, as after his first and second choices of opponent fell through, the third opponent, Michael Williams Jr., suffered a broken jaw in training. And so just a little over a week out, the whole card was postponed, which also means another postponement of the ongoing saga of Tevin Farmer versus Mickey Bay, which is going to be on that undercard. Bronner now has a working date of April 29th. Uh, we reported recently on super middleweight Edgar Berlanga's split with top rank. Uh, this week, he finalized a deal with Matchroom Boxing and has indicated his ultimate goal is a fight with Canelo Alvarez. Uh, and lastly, some sad news. Uh, Ken Thompson, who promoted fights in Southern California for the last 23 years, died last week at the age of 85. Thompson boxing shows featured the likes of a young Tim Bradley, Chris Ariola, Danny Roman, and Josecito Lopez. Uh, quoting from the Thompson boxing release, quote, Kenny's passion for boxing was contagious, and he inspired countless people to become involved in the sport, both as boxers and bands. He was known for his energetic and enthusiastic approach to promoting boxing events, and his shows always had a special energy that was palpable from the moment the first bell rang. Eric, your thoughts on any of this news? I'll just start with quick condolences to the family, friends, and colleagues of uh, Ken Thompson. Um, I don't have much to say about the burner situation at this point. He claims he's in great shape and ready to go. Uh, we've heard that before. I, I do feel bad for Farmer and Bay. They, they've been inactive oh for a while trying to finally make that fight happen, and it repeatedly finds creative new ways to not happen. Um, but the, the news here most worth commenting on is Berlanga and um, fine signing for Matchroom. Um, and I don't have a problem with him calling out Canelo. You know, that's where the money is. Why, why not throw his name out there? What I'm annoyed by is the media members having serious discussions around the possibility of Berlanga Canelo. 
Berlanga's struggles of late against C-level opposition make that idea laughable. And, you know, let's say he improves. Let's say he becomes a real world-class contender. Well, that ain't happening overnight. So uh, by the time it does, Canelo will be just about ready to retire. It ain't happening. Canelo, Berlanga, that's like a one in a thousand chance that that fight happens. Canelo versus Jake Paul, whatever we may think of it, is much more likely to come to fruition than Canelo Berlanga. I just, I can't believe the people who should know better saying things like, if Berlanga has a couple of impressive wins, he's in the Canelo mix. No, Canelo versus Berlanga isn't a thing. It won't be a thing. And Edgar Berlanga should just worry about developing as a fighter. And that's it for now. Yep. All righty. It is time now for the top five countdown. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, you sent me the task of picking the top best performances that that illustrated the Hall of Fame worthiness of this year's male modern inductees. Tim Bradley, Rafael Marquez, and Carl Froch. And even with the additional week, oh, God, it was a tough task, actually, (laughs) because I felt that there was certainly at least a combined eight performances that elevated themselves from the rest. Um, And deciding which to not put in that top five was very difficult. And I'm sure there's going to be no small number of people, perhaps including you, like, how could you leave that one out? You're an idiot. (laughs) Um, Two of the fighters had three strong contenders in my mind. One of them had two. And I went back and forth a lot, especially on deciding the fifth place finisher. But you know what? I feel like I provide caveats every time I do this. And I should just (laughs) go ahead and own my list. So here we go. All right. And And I'll just say before you reveal number five, that as long as it's not a tie, then I support whatever you, you know, put at number five. It's so funny. It's so funny. I thought to myself, I should make it a tie again. I'm like, I just did that. And my <laughs> annual tie thing just like yes. the other week. I can't get away with that. So <laughs> yeah, yep. I All figured right. it was it was time to actually, you know, take a stand here. Good. Oh. <laughs> All right. Number five, I put May 13th. Uh, May 13th. May 31st, 2014, Wembley Stadium, Carl Froch, KOA, George Groves. Um. One of the first fights that we've ever had to make it onto two top five lists. Mm. Um, And I include this one for much the same reason that it was on our previous list. It was a perfect one-punch mic drop end to a career. Um, Add to that the fact that it played out in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium in what Ring Magazine dubbed the event of the year, but paid to the controversy that surrounded their first meeting, which Froch also won by perhaps premature stoppage. Um, There are many different types of fights that make up a deserving Hall of Fame candidacy. And I think emphatic knockout wins in front of a massive number of fans in your country's national stadium, after which you walk off the stage, that is one of those types. Yeah, a, a fine pick. Uh, I So I ended up with like 14 that I considered, and then I, okay. put, I put my top 10 in an order. Uh, in any case, this was number six for me. This was just outside of my top five, so obviously I am not going to gripe about it being your number five. I think that's a fine spot for it. Okay. Number four, October 12th, 2013, Las Vegas, Timothy Bradley, 112, Juan Manuel Marquez. Um, if Froch's spectacular KO win in front of a huge crowd is one form of Hall of Fame qualifying contest, um, Bradley's point decision win over Marquez was another. This, this is one of the two wins in my top five that come over fellow Hall of Famers. Um, and this is a top flight Hall of Famer, one who's coming off a knockout win over Manny Pacquiao, even. Um, Somehow this was a split decision, but uh, forget about that. This was a very good boxing display by Bradley, and he himself highlighted it as one of his very best performances when we spoke to him a few weeks ago, and, and quite rightly. Um, look, Bradley's candidacy sometimes 
got some pushback from some fans. He never really connected with the fan base in the way that some fighters did. This isn't a highlight reel fight by any means. It's more of a purist's delight. But for me, if you wanted to make a case of, of why Tim Bradley had the skills to be every inch a deserved Hall of Famer, I recommend this one. Yeah, so I think this is a great example of how no two lists in this countdown are going to look exactly the same because I had this at number one. Uh, this this for oh, me okay. was, the, was the top Hall of Fame worthy performance of any of these three guys. Yes, the fight was close as hell and, and basically swung on a single punch in round 12, but it is a legit win over a first ballot Hall of Famer who was coming off a knockout win over Manny Pacquiao. And, uh, and, and it was just so cool that Tim told us how that's sort of how his dad framed this fight going in told him you know you win this one you're a hall of famer Mm. this this is number one on my list but again pretty hard to come to a consensus order on this number four is also a fine spot for it okay uh number three may 26 2012 nottingham england carl frotch ko5 lucian boutte uh i think some folks may forget how highly regarded boutte was at this point he was 30 and 0 he had wins over the likes of fulgencio zuniga librado andrade twice, although one was somewhat controversial. Edison Miranda, William Joppy, Saki Obika, all really solid pros. Frotch was good, but he just lost to Andre Ward in the Super 6 final, and a couple of fights before that, he dropped a decision to Mikkel Kessler. He was at a major transition point in his career, and he annihilated Butte, just absolutely destroyed him from the first bell to the last before stopping him in the fifth. This was the win that propelled Frotch onward and upward to the Mikel Kessler rematch win, to the Groves wins, and ultimately to the Hall of Fame. This was really, I think, the night where Carl Frotch denounced himself as actually being a truly very good champion and potential Hall of Famer. I'm glad you included this because this was one that I thought is a possible fight to overlook to forget about how impressive it was in the moment i had it at number four similar to you um i believe butte was favored if i'm remembering correctly i think so too yeah yeah. at the very least a lot of people were picking him um i was not among them i I did think frotch would win but i i also thought it would at least be a highly competitive fight and frotch just absolutely kicked his ass so definitely a, a strong choice for the top five here number two february 23rd 2002 las vegas Rafael Marquez, KO8, Mark Johnson. Um, When Marquez first met Johnson at the end of 2001, Johnson was the man at the lower weights. He held world titles. He had held world titles, I should say, of flyweight and superfly. He had a record of 40 and 1. He was on a 39-fight win streak, was looking to make moves in the bantamweight division. And in that first meeting, he was declared the winner on the scorecards was Mark Johnson. Then there was an announcement that there was an error in the scorecards, but he was still the winner. And then there was a further announcement later in the night that, in fact, no, actually, he was he was the loser. Um, hardly ideal situation, but there was no mistake at all when Johnson and Marquez met a second time in a quality fight that was perhaps a little bit slow to get to the boil. By about round four or five, Marquez just took over, dominated the fight the rest of the way, dropped Johnson at the end of the seventh, finished him off in the eighth. Uh, it is a measure of how long it took Marquez to become enshrined in the Hall of Fame. Now, this fight took place a decade before the others that are on my list. Right. And that Marquez will be entering the Hall 11 years after Johnson, the guy he beat on this <laughs> night. Um, so, yeah, this uh, again, I go back to the no two lists are going to look alike here uh, because this this one definitely crossed my mind. It was under consideration, but it was not even quite in my top 10. It was in like uh, that okay. next that next little group for me. Um, 
but a, a really tricky one to judge. It was like one of those things where, yeah, when Marquez beat Mark Johnson the first time, it was a massive accomplishment uh, given given how highly regarded Mark Johnson was. But as you said, it was kind of a controversial decision that took a couple tries for the judges to uh, to for the for everyone to realize what, what what the judges had said and all that. By the time of the rematch, which was the more impressive win, obviously stopped him in the eighth. Now it's entered your mind that maybe Mark Johnson isn't quite in his prime anymore. So. I no no issues with you putting it at number two. I didn't quite have it in my top ten, but again, just shows you how difficult it is to find the right order for these fights. Exactly, and um, not sure where my number one is going to be on your list. Um, like I said, there's all kinds of different uh, fights to make make the case for a Hall of Fame career. I have March sixteenth, twenty thirteen, Carson California, Timothy Bradley, yeah, one twelve, Ruslan Provodnikov. Um, what else? can you say about this fight that hasn't already been said Provodnikov floored Bradley in the very first round of the matchup although referee Pat Russell made a mistake and called it a slip and the pace barely let up from there um it is interesting this fight came in the middle of that three fight sequence that was so pivotal in Bradley's career he was gifted a decision against Manny Pacquiao that saw him heavily criticized by fans and then it was after this that he had that performance against Juan Manuel Marquez this one showed he could be a warrior too as well as a skilled boxer um after Provodnikov began to slow down from his early assault, Bradley was able to meet him head on, landing fast, sharp counters, swelling Provodnikov's face into a bloody mess. Still, Provodnikov kept coming, dropping Bradley hard again right at the end of the 12th. But Bradley barely dragged himself up, but he survived and won the decision. And look, like I said, there are many different types of Hall of Fame qualifying fights. One-sided domination, dramatic knockouts, classy boxing performances against fellow Hall of Famers. But I think in years to come, this is the one fight of this top five that people will always remember and watch over and over and over again. Good call. Good reasoning. Uh, I had this at number three, and certainly, yeah, you're not going to see a better example of Hall of Fame heart than what Tim Bradley showed in this fight. Yeah. All right. I mentioned I had difficulty with excluding some fights. I realized I miscounted. I actually had nine front runners in total. Okay. Um, the one that I excluded that I think perhaps you and certainly others are most likely to take issue with is Rafa Marquez TKO7 Israel Vasquez. Uh, it's probably his most famous win. Um, I, the only reason I didn't include it, and oh, I dithered about this, um, was it probably wasn't the best fight in the series. Um, the second and third ones were the better ones, and those were the ones that Marquez lost. It was a very good fight, obviously, which is why we ended up with the rematch, and then the third fight. It, had it been in isolation, I'm not sure that it would have been automatically for consideration in, in this list. But honestly, you could have it number one, and I wouldn't fight you over it. Like, it would be a good case, uh, and it might be what you might first turn to to illustrate why Rafa Marquez is a Hall of Famer. But for me, it was like number six. Um, and I did also consider Rafa's TKO8 win over Tim Austin, um, who was also a fabulous fighter. But... Um, I thought it was a very similar in a way to the case of his, of his second fight over Johnson um, and Austin not quite at Mark Johnson's level. I very much thought about Carl Froch's KO-12 over Jermaine Taylor. Um, it, only the fact that I had to pick some and exclude others. Um, I, I thought that his comeback, you know, the, the comeback win over Groves was a little bit better in the end, but... Again, a hell of a, um, a performance. Again, if you want to include it and have it high on the list, no problem with you there. And then the other one was uh, that I forgot about was uh, Tim Bradley's win over Junior Witter, uh, another one that we talked about with Tim. 
that gets a little bit overlooked because people, I think, forget how good Junior Widow was. But uh, and Bradley going all the way to the UK to win that title. Those are the ones that, to me, slightly stood out. Um, and I'm sure there are probably plenty of others too. So uh, the two that were in my top five that uh, that didn't make your top five, you did mention both of them, and they're both Rafael Marquez fights. Uh, okay. I don't take issue with uh, with that first win over Vasquez. I had that one at number five. Um, I mean okay. he moved up in weight and beat Vasquez. And this is one that, that grew in stature based on what Izzy did in their next two fights. Um, and I had the KO8 over Tim Austin as my number two. You know, oh, no, okay. nobody talks anymore about how good Timmy Austin was. Yep. Um, he ended up disappearing from the game in disgrace, doing jail time, bad stuff. Uh, but he was a hell of a fighter. He was undefeated and, and creeping onto pound for pound lists when Marquez stopped him to kick off a, a great reign as the bantamweight champ. You know, people who don't understand why Rafa is a Hall of Famer because all they know is the Vasquez fights at 122. It's his reign at 118 that yeah. really set him on that path. Um, a few others that uh, I had just outside my top five. I thought Frotch getting the win over Mikkel Kessler in their second fight. Mm, yeah. uh, Bradley KO8, Joel Casamayor. Casamayor was toward the end, but still an excellent win over high-quality fighter. This one I wouldn't have thought I was going to consider, but then I saw the scores. Tim Bradley decision over Lamont Peterson. It was almost a shutout. Uh, so, so to me, just to see that he basically shut out Lamont Peterson, that was a huge statement. I had Marquez's loss in the third fight with Vasquez, uh, qualifying, mm. just an amazing fight. And he just barely lost. Uh, you mentioned Frotch Taylor. That was in my also rans as well as Bradley Witter. And then the only other one that you haven't mentioned, uh, Frotch over Arthur Abraham, just a, a dominant mm. performance. Mm. Although Abraham, uh, by then we knew he was kind of limited. So, uh, yeah, we weren't too wildly far off given how wildly far off two people could be on these lists. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, what does it say about these guys? I, I think if you're struggling to, to figure out how many of these guys fights to put in a top five, because you have plenty more than five really good performances between them all, I think that shows that they're all pretty worthy Hall of Famers, actually. And uh, I, you know, that I know that they had to kick their heels a bit, especially Rafa, but uh, I'm, I'm glad they're all going in. I think they all deserve to go in. Definitely. All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We'll be back next week with our post-fight thoughts on the Showtime triple header. We may or may not include coverage of Paul Fury since it's on a Sunday on pay-per-view and we haven't decided what to do and how right. determined we are to watch it ourselves. We'll see on that one. Uh, but we will definitely preview the Showtime card headlined by Brandon Figueroa against Mark McSayo. Uh, I will definitely give Eric his next top five assignment and we will definitely play the fight game. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe kind and be well.